0: Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry.
1: Hey, hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. Julie and I had the true honor and pleasure of sitting down with Aubrey Slater. Aubrey is a trans woman and a former first lieutenant in the USMC and a true hospitality professional. She has achieved the second level sommelier certification and has worked in wineries, cruise ships, fine dining restaurants, you name it, she has done it. Now she has been blessed to work for in some of the best cocktail bars in the world and has the honor of working and mentored by some of the top beverage professionals including our served up family friend Mr. Dale DeGroff. So currently Aubrey is the co-owner and the chief brand development queen for St. Luna Charcoal Filtered Moonshine. She thinks that just life is a big adventure and she embraces it with everything that she has. So grab yourself your favorite St. Luna cocktail and enjoy the show. Aubrey, welcome to Served Up. Julie and I are truly honored to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with
2: you, ladies.
1: Can you maybe um, share with us and our listeners, really, what brought you into the beverage world? I know you have um, a long history in beverage. And maybe can you take us back to the beginnings? I would say
2: that the very first try I got was in Washington, D.C., where I grew up in the D.C. area. And it was at a, as a bar back in a nightclub um, that was pretty popular back then. And you uh, know, 18 years old, didn't really know what I was doing. And my friend was one of the managers and brought me on. And that was a lot of fun. You know, I didn't really get to do any bartending, but it definitely got my feet wet and gave me an interest for it. And then in college, I did a little bit of bartending. But um, it was uh, when I was living with a girlfriend, she was a, a popular bartender in D.C., And I remember I was waiting tables and I wanted the bar job to be a bartender. And of course, like every other person in the industry, um, I lied. And, you know, they were just like, do you have any experience? And I'm like, yes, of course I do. I weaseled my way in there and um, I uh, was making flashcards. And my girlfriend would test me on like, what's in a margarita, you know, what's in a Cuba Libre, what's in a Long Island iced tea kind of dating myself here. But yeah, that's uh, basically how it all started and just uh, kept
0: going from there. It's so interesting to speak to all these different people and, and everybody has a very kind of similar story, how they fell into the hospitality industry. So it's nice that, um, that yours is, is very similar. So tell us a little bit about you know kind of your journey. I know you have the most incredible adventurous life. Um, you've done a lot of interesting things. So let's start with the first most interesting thing you were doing. You were part of the U.S.
2: Uh, yeah, I was. Um, I was a, a Marine. I was a first lieutenant, uh, first battalion, first Marines. Uh, right after college, I, uh, I I joined the Corps. Um, I was supposed to go into a MEPS program, which would have been testing into being uh, an officer and just going from there. But I figured uh, going into the Marines, it would probably be best for me to do like basic training um, so I could get the respect of the people who were going to be serving underneath. Oh, me. So is that so- a choice?
0: I didn't re- I didn't realize that you could skip basic training. As a first, yeah, oh. absolutely. You
2: know, there's a lot of people who are officers in uh, the military because, you know, they're, they're doctors mm-hmm. or they're, you know, judge advocate generals, they're lawyers, um, things of that nature. Um, I was going to be an, an intelligence officer, um, but yeah, things didn't quite work out that way. Um, apparently, I had a natural aptitude uh, for marksmanship. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a, basically um, an escape for me. Uh basic training, boot camp was difficult. Um, they knew I was gonna be an officer. They knew I was uh, a college graduate, so they they worked me hard. And uh my only piece was basically on the firing range. Um it was a I was a philosophy major at, at Georgetown and uh so <laughs> it was a very zen exercise. It was me, it was that target, and I could zero out everything else. I could get, you know, in the zone and no one was bothering me. And uh yeah, it was um it was it was it was a freeing experience, and I, I just had a apparently a natural inclination for it. So when I finally finished uh, basic training and went out to uh, Miramar in San Diego for Officer Candidate School, I was approached by one of the instructors at the, at the Scout School. So uh, they um, saw my natural aptitude for this. Um, I was psychologically uh, profiled to match this sort of uh, <laughs> this sort of exercise. And yeah, so I was stubborn and I figured, why not? You know, I wasn't supposed to do this. You should you, you're supposed to serve at least a couple of years before being able to enter. But um, somehow I got away with this and uh, yeah, went to a scout sniper school and became a, a sniper for the Corps. <laughs>
0: I would totally lead with that. You know, (laughs) I'm just saying that would be the first I'd introduce myself. Hello. I used to be a sniper for the the Marine Corps, the United States, you know, but um, that is just so incredible, Aubrey. And the way that you describe it, right? Because, you know, we caught up the last time, but, you know, we, we didn't go through every detail, um, how you described your marksmanship is what kind of led you to that. Cause immediately when you think somebody is a sniper, you're like, Oh my God, I think of like my son running around with his Nerf gun and just like, you know, you just envisioned something different, <laughs> but for yours, it was like very specific to your escape and marksmanship and like that being a way for you to show how incredible you are. Um, but uh, you know, I'll let Bridget ask the next question.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think that we just need to continue your journey, truly. So from man, for being a sniper girl. Yeah, <laughs> Where'd yeah. Where'd you go a- from there?
2: Well, it's interesting, you know, being in the military, you get uh, you get the option and uh, the advantage of being able to travel all over the world and uh, got sent to all the greatest places like Somalia, Belgian Congo and uh, Rwanda during uh, the 90s. Um, Not exactly uh, vacation destinations, but um, that's where we were needed. And then I was in uh, I was in Kosovo and. Serbia it, during the Bosnian Croatian conflict and oh, you were
0: uh, in all the best places. No, oh yeah, all the so hot right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's just like I
2: look at it now and it's so interesting because like Rwanda has tourism. They have, you know, extra money for art programs at schools. And it's uh, an amazing culture there now. And, you know, from what I saw when I was there, it's really, it's, it's, it's almost a miracle to see how, how thriving that they are. You know, when I was in Bosnia and Croatia and Serbia and Kosovo, like I was there helping to stop a genocide. And it's like, uh, you know, now it's like, Oh my god. Come to Croatia and sell the seas and check out our beautiful coastline. And you know, it's it, it's, you know, with Milosevic gone and everything seemed to kind of open up. But it's interesting to see like the direct impact that um the military actually had on these places. You know, it seems like back then we were actually fighting for causes in these days it seems so convoluted but for uh, humanity from there I am yeah exactly you know it's like I've worked at places where like someone's like hey have you ever been to this place I'm like yeah I was in Kosovo for some reason they're just like why (laughs) you know then I tell them and it's interesting to see the the direct impact we made like I was working at a restaurant and this young woman was talking about where she was from and I was like yeah I've been to Kosovo and and she just looked at me she's like why would you be in Kosovo why no one goes to Kosovo and I was like, "Well." you know, I was in the military and she just started crying and jumped on me and basically thanked me um, for the safety of her family. Like they're alive because of uh, the impact that we had there. You know, you just don't really realize it at the time when you're in the middle of everything, you know, it's like it took two bullets and, and just went through all kinds of craziness. And, you know, to come out on the other side and see that these countries are thriving and I'm thriving and everybody's just uh, in a much better place is just such a bonus. So wonderful! Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a great feeling. It it, it really is, you know, to know that you are, you actually did, you know, make a difference.
0: So when you came out, I mean, did you like do a term? What was that transition like? Getting out of the Marine Corps, and and it sounds like pretty much diving into the hospitality industry.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, at first I got out and I did a little corporate uh, work, but I hated it. Absolutely hated it. It just was not for me. Plus, I was like, not exactly the greatest of head spaces. You know, I was still, you know, it's like I, I went from, you know, being, you know, very active, um, you know, Marine Corps sniper to being shot twice and going through rehabilitation in a military hospital in Frankfurt and then getting out of the military and not really knowing what direction I was going to go in, but trying to, you know, do what I thought was expected of me. And, worked real quick. And like I said, in the corporate world, and then just hated it. And was talking to a friend. And he's like, yo, I got this position. Um, He's like, "Uh, let me know if this sounds cool to you. But how would you like to bartend at, um, at the swingers resort in Jamaica? And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Why not? Why not? Bartend at a swingers resort. That sounds like a lot
1: more fun than a corporate job. (laughs) Oh, the stories you must have, Aubrey. (laughs) Oh, I
2: know. I know. It's just like (laughs) it went from like some serious military movie to like some sort of 80s rom-com in like a heartbeat.
1: (laughs) Well, take us from there. So, you know, so you started bartending and then where did your life's journey take you um, from that point? Um, Well, from Jamaica, I came back to D.C.,
2: I was working in a couple of different restaurants, uh, a fine dining Italian restaurant downtown. Um, and then I met this uh, young German lady that moved into the building next to me. And we had this whirlwind, like summer romance and she had to go back to Berlin. So we did the whole long distance phone thing. And then I ended up, you know, up and moving to Berlin. <laughs> so for love and being young and stupid, but it was uh, off to Berlin. I went, you know, and, and, and just continued with the whole hospitality industry. You know, it's like when you go to someplace new and you don't speak the language, it seemed like almost the, the obvious choice was just I was working in the kitchen. You know, I didn't have to deal with anybody. I was washing dishes. I was prep cooking every once in a while, they'd make some, you know, like American dish, you know, for them as like a nightly special, like fried chicken. And they would just, they, they loved it until, you know, my, my German improved. And then I was able to branch out and got yet again, a bar back position at a nightclub.
0: That's great. Um, I, I just, I love that transition and that story. So keep us going. What was the next kind of, You've worked for some really incredible people and really grew a, um, a tremendous career and got um, you're part of the Quartermaster Sommeliers. Take us through that time.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I was like I said, I was bar backing for the Kit Kat Club in Berlin and uh, stayed in Berlin for about a year. Then we moved to Prague. Um, I was living in this one building, ended up bartending at the Irish pub that was in the, ba- in the ground floor of our building. Um, and funny enough, uh, the gentleman who owned it was like former IRA and a weapons uh, dealer in, <laughs> in Prague. So we, we clicked instantly and that was a whole other uh, bag of nuts there. But um, <laughs> I stayed there for about six months bartending and just uh, messing around and came back to D.C. And I was working for um, a hotel um, company and opening up hotel bars around D.C. and had the pleasure of uh, meeting Mr. Del DeGroff, and uh, basically just like opened up my eyes to a whole new um, you know level of hospitality and service and um, craftsmanship as far as like cocktails were concerned, using fresh ingredients because you know all through like the eighties and nineties um, it got very commercialized. It was like using daily sour mix and margarita mix and roses lime juice and CRP grenadine and making all these shooters and. You know, doing like Long Island teas and melon balls and sex on the beach and sex with an alligator and all this other syrupy crap that everybody was drinking during those times. And, you know, then it was like the martini craze of the early 2000s, where it's like flirtini, apple teeny, French martini, this martini. And then Dale came and he was working on cocktail uh, menus for Trader Fix and Rainbow Room and all these amazing places. And um, he became a, a mentor and I just like opened my eyes. And then um, DC was just crazy. And it was like, you know, we had nine eleven. we had the DC sniper. There was like another blizzard. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm just like so tired. But being part of the news, like I just didn't want to deal with people and all that nuts, you know, this nonsense. So I up and moved to Maui, <laughs> sight unseen. Love that. I love Maui. Oh, Maui no kooi, it's the best. I miss my Aina every day. I really do. You know, and it's like I got to keep going with bartending there. Like I was at first I was working for a parasol company, putting people up in parachutes. Um, then you know, I finally broke into the restaurant business and I was like waiting tables at a local place and it was just gorgeous. And the thing about Hawaii is if you want to bartend, you have to take a test. (laughs) Like
1: I didn't know that. Yeah.
2: You actually have to take a test and be certified. And there's like crazy questions. Like what is the legal like size for a dance floor in a nightclub, you know? And you're just like, what is, how is this ever going to be relevant for me working in like a tiki bar, you know, at a place called cheeseburger in paradise. Like how is this, how is this even like, you know, comparable to what I'm going to be using? You know, it's not just, Anyway, but I did I did that. Everybody knew. Like if you wanted to bartend, you go to the library, you check out the book, you know, it's like health codes and it just like gave you all the answers to to all the test questions. So that was that helped and then next thing you know, I'm like slinging drinks in in Maui and it's so funny cuz here everybody's like, you know, tiki got so big, but there they're just cocktails, you know, cuz it's Hawaii and it's just they don't have tiki. It's just Hawaiian. <laughs>
1: So how long were you there before you moved back to the mainland? Um,
2: I was in Maui for a couple of years. So it was like the early 2000s from like 2000 beginning of 2003 um, to the end of 2004. I got to San Francisco in uh, the winter of 2005. And uh, it's interesting because San Francisco, you think it's just this beautiful, you know, historic city. It's you know, lovely houses and the hills and the ocean. And it's just like this tourist destination. But when you're leaving paradise, it's, it was the ugliest city I had ever been to. I was just like, oh my God, this is horrible. I was like, it's gray and it's rainy and it's dirty. And there's like homeless people everywhere. And, you know, there's homeless people in Hawaii, but they're like the happiest homeless people in the world. So it was definitely this culture shock going from, you know, paradise to San Francisco.
0: I can imagine. I mean, you know, you go from kind of that island life where everybody's just, you know, in this happy place to going to a big metropolitan city where, you know, people are kind of struggling to get by. Um, yeah, and and it does get gloomy in San Francisco. It's beautiful. I love San Francisco, but it's, it's pretty gloomy.
2: It's a great place to visit. That's.
0: that's <laughs> I'm going to leave it at that.
2: I mean, I think the best thing about San Francisco is its surrounding areas. You know, you have Big Sur, Carmel, Monterey. Um, You have, you know, wine mountains there. Yeah, Yeah. the Santa Cruz Mountains. Then you got Napa, Sonoma,
0: Lake County, Lodi. And then you get there. Like I, I, Sonoma Coast is one of my most favorite places in the world. Um, Oh, yeah. So is that when you kind of, because when did you start getting into wine from um, kind of really diving into the the cocktail world? Or did you do Um, it simultaneously?
2: It was kind of a simultaneous thing. Like, it's like, you know, I went from like this, the beginning of this cocktail, you know, craft cocktail journey and working with Dale and opening up hotel bars and working with an, an other amazing bartenders like Rachel Sergi in DC. She's just a, a genius and has been, uh, you know, just this force of nature in the bartending world. I've been lucky and blessed to work with amazing people, but, um, Yeah. When I first got to San Francisco, I was waiting tables at this restaurant that was famous for being like the industry, the hospitality restaurant. It was like all the chefs went there after they got out of work. We served food till um, 1am, which is like in San Francisco, that is considered like very late. That is a quiet, sleepy town. Like man, it hits 1am and San Fran's just shuts down. Probably going to get angry with me saying San Fran because that's just (laughs) how they are. But (laughs) so be it. But, um, yeah, so I'm working in this place and it's very wine centric, and one of the owners, Mary, she was you know very into wine and you know knew a lot of people in the wine world, and I met you know amazing people like Josh Jensen who owned Calera Wines, and and you know it's just like I'm getting introduced to this whole different culture as far as you know the hospitality industry is concerned, and you know it's San Francisco, so everybody and their brother thinks they're an expert in wine, you know, and you're just like. I was into wine when I was in D.C. I was working for this great Italian place and started learning about Italian wines and really thought I had a, a handle on it. Realized I did not know much. And, uh, you know, people ask me for something. I want something big and dry and lots of tannins, but, you know, could you make it jammy? And you're just like, <laughs> you know, I didn't know any better. It's like trying to learn all the vocabulary. And I'm just like started doing some research. I'm like, wow, these people don't know Shinola about wine, like <laughs> just. They're just like, you're so right.
0: Everybody that's like from the Northern California area claims that they're a wine expert. It's hilarious. You're so right.
2: Yeah. You don't learn wine by osmosis. You know, It's just like, you don't just like get wine adjacent and become an expert, you know? So I was just like, well, shit, I can't, I can't let my guests, my customers know more about my job than I do. I was like, that's just, that's just silly talk. You know so I was like I'm going to get some books I looked up online like you know different organizations like how can I how can I better myself at this like how can I become more well-rounded you know as far as being a beverage professional
1: I'll need to do that right no and again Abs- yeah exactly I'll I mean to take a pause and and see where we're, where our gaps are so that's good that you did that so you were in San Francisco Bring us back to, um, how did you then get to New York? I mean, we're talking coast to coast here.
2: Oh yeah. Well, you know, like while I was in San Francisco, I, I, I got, um, my beginner level, uh, sommelier certification, got my advanced, um, sommelier certification, uh, was running wine programs for high-end French restaurants in San Francisco and Napa. And, uh, it, this was, you know, in the early 2000s and then the economy just, uh, the shit hit the fan in 2008 and just, I mean, San Francisco got hit so hard, like all these like, um, just dynasties and, and, and fine dining were just like crumbling, you know, like first they like, closing for lunch, then they're just clo- shutting their doors altogether. and the last thing people wanted to do was, you know, spend six figures on a sommelier when they couldn't even, you know, keep a chef on and uh, right so things were tough. I I lost my job, you know, my, my relationship suffered. I couldn't find work, you know, at this point in time, I was just like some dude in his thirties, you know, and like, I'm going to these cattle calls of, 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 you know, job interviews and I'm sitting next to some kid and like, you know, like a Morrissey t-shirt, ripped jeans and some Chuck Taylors. And I'm in a three piece suit. And I'm just like, Oh my God, what am I doing? It's like, <laughs> yeah. I can't, I was just like, I'm never going to get these bartending jobs sitting next to a 22 year old girl, you know, with a big rack and you know, the economy's down. I know we're going to hire, they're not hiring me. They're hiring the hot chick because that's what they thought, you know, was going to bring in the patrons and maybe it does at first, but it doesn't keep their attention. You know, it takes somebody who's an expert you know, who can carry on a conversation, make a good drink, you know, that's just the way of the world. So I, I, I showed them, I became the hot chick with big rack.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you start then your transition in San Francisco or was that when you went to New York?
2: Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. Really. If you ask my ex-girlfriend, then yes, definitely started in San Francisco. Um, But I went from San Francisco to Pittsburgh and did some restaurant management, helped open up some fine dining bars, you know, just kind of did my thing there. But it was mostly to help my mom take care of my grandfather. So it was like a, this three year kind of pit stop in my life before I mm-hmm. came to New York City. And I just randomly met this one gentleman um, while I was bartending at a restaurant in a mall in Beaver County, Pennsylvania. Um, when I just didn't think it could get much lower in my professional, you know, in my career. Um, and this guy comes in and he's visiting the area because that's where his girlfriend's family is. And, you know, we start talking. He says he open, he owns some cocktail bars in New York. And I'm like, yeah, no kidding, huh? Well, let's talk about that. And, you know, he came up to the bar. We were geeking out over cocktails. Next thing I know he's behind the bar with me and we're shaking drinks and, you know, just like geeking out over cocktails. And he's like, what? what are you doing here? he's like, and I'm like, I'm bartending. And he's like, no, seriously, like, why are you here? (laughs) You know? And. Oh my gosh. Beaver County, Pennsylvania in a, in a restaurant, in a mall. And I was like, you know, family obligations. And he's like, well, I'm opening up a new place in in, in New York and I want you to run it. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) I was like, sure. You know, so we exchanged information and, you know, and then he left and I just kind of chalked it up to like, bar talk we were two bartenders we were excited you know it's like me from san francisco him from new york city here we are meeting in bf egypt you know like in the middle of nowhere right and it, it was just like kismet like you know like how do you not you know like is it a coincidence i i don't know like were we meant to meet meant to meet each other perhaps you know but here we are you know and we're in, in the same shared space and then neg- he comes back like a few months later. And I was like, listen, I understand if we got all excited and about meeting each other and this and that. And he's like, no, I'm dead serious. Come to New York. Unfortunately, my grandfather did pass away, but, um, it it left me the opportunity to finally move to New York city. And I did, and I just moved on up here to help open up this, uh, beautiful little bar in battery park city. Um, and that just started my New York venture.
1: And you've been there ever since. I mean, not at that bar, but you've been in New yeah. York ever since that time. And I know that you have worked at um, some very notable, you know, cocktail establishments that have really put New York on the map as a, a cocktail town, you know? Oh,
2: yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, I was working at one bar in San Francisco that was like a speakeasy style bar and was like one of the first. And, you know, then I I I move out to Cal- to New York City. And it's interesting, you know, it's like I started off okay, you know, I was working for reputable places and I opened this one bar and things just didn't work out. Um, when you ask about my transition, like that was it, like that was like during that first job and, and I was going through a whole lot of problems. Like I was uh, dealing with substance abuse, um, you know, being transgendered, I spent most of my life walking around in my own prison. Um, I never really cared about what happened to me because I was just not living my own life. You know, like I was self-destructive. I put myself in horrible, really dangerous situations. You know, like I got shot in the military. I was always, um, you know, I didn't know properly how to be a boy. So I overcompensated, you know, It's like, mm-hmm. athlete frat boy, military, like, you know, things that, you know, I normally would probably never be involved with if I got to just be myself. But, you know, in the end, they helped make me who I am today. But, you know, it was I didn't care about myself. I was self loathing. I was dark. Um, you know, I didn't get to be myself. And all of this kind of like culminated in, in you know, with a city like New York, where everything is straight there you know, so readily available, you're, it's right. You know, you can get into trouble very easily, very quickly. And I ended up, you know, like I said, with substance abuse and I ended up homeless. (laughs) So, and when I was younger, like I was a a go-go dancer at some of the biggest clubs in New York city. And, you know, I had friends who were just like, why don't you just move to New York? And I'm like, man, I knew even when I was 18, 19 years old, I was like, if I ever moved to New York, I'm either going to end up homeless or dead. Oh <laughs> and, you know, fast forward like 20 years and yeah, I ended up homeless. Um, basically self-fulfilling prophecy. And I was living in a freight container and abandoned lot in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn.
1: Oh my God. I mean, Aubrey, so when you're at this point in your life, you know, and this is why you're, I mean, one of just one of the reasons why you're incredibly inspiring you know so many folks would have just thrown in the towel and just said, "Fuck it and just give it up right right at that point, but you didn't do that, so can we take it from there and really what what got you to where you are today like what what where did that inspiration come from? Where did that um grit come from to not just stay in the dark?
2: you know it was um it would have been very easy to just like slip into you know obscurity and just let. I think what most people would consider the natural course of things take place um, and just be a homeless drug addict. You know what I mean, like the option was definitely there, you know, like I was, uh, you know, well on my way and, you know, I was addicted to um, methamphetamines. I did end up homeless. I was living in a freight container <laughs> like, and, and then I got put into the system and I was put into these things called SRO, which is a single room occupancy, which is basically like a dorm building for homeless people. And, uh, you know, my friends are always, you know, watching, keeping tabs on me, seeing what's happening, you know? And I, uh, I, I guess, you know, at first, like, I just, I just wrote that wave, you know, I was like, well, I'm just going to be this homeless drug addicted tranny. And I was like, you know, first okay with this. And then it's like, the further along in my transition, I went, you know, it's just like, I'm, I'm get this whole new outlook on life. I get this, this, a second chance that not many people really get, like, I really get to, uh, flip the script on my life and start a whole new story. Um, yeah. you know, I, I knew I had it in me. It's like, you know, I was a decent student. I went to a top university. I was, you know, a military officer, I um, I had the potential, you know. It's like I had the basic material to build something good, you know, within me. I just had to, you know, dust that off and and and, and revisit it and uh, and kind of like remold it to work for a new life. And I was talking to my mom, and she was like, "Listen, if you're still going to be doing the same shit, the same crap that you were doing as a boy, you might as well just date a boy." And it really struck home. And I was just like, wow. I was like, I'm not a boy. I was like, I've never really been a boy. Mm -hmm. I was just like, and now I actually get this chance to live my life as me. And the last thing I want to do is be some toothless, you know, like meth smoking tranny, you know, out on the streets. I was just like, I can't do this to myself. I was like, I owe myself better. You know, I, 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 I want to be a beautiful woman. I want to be a successful person. I want to be able to take the second chance and actually make something good of it. And so I did. And, you know, it was very difficult for me because I like I, I didn't know how to go looking for work in, in, in such a high profile position, such as a bartender where you know, all eyes on you. Yeah. You're know? in the
1: front of the house. You're not hiding in the back somewhere anymore. No, no,
2: no wow. you are center stage, you know, spotlight right. position. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, at least when you're a surfer, you have the option to walk away. You know, like when you're, when you're bartending, it's like, that's it. You're in your little area. You're on stage. Everybody wants your attention, you know? And I couldn't imagine like, just coming to work one day and just like, Oh, well today I'm a girl and everybody just has to deal with this. And, you know, like and expecting that everything was going to work out, you know, it's like, I knew like maybe somebody would say something stupid to me, something hurtful, damaging. And, you know, and that would have been it, you know, like, Oh, done. I tried, I failed. (laughs) I'm just going to just like, give up on this. And, uh, you know, my friends offered me great advice, like, well, why don't you get a job in a gay bar? And I'm just like, well, (laughs) you know, I guess I could, I guess that's what's expected of me, you know, as, you know, a a trans woman, but I'm a second level sommelier. I, I ran beverage programs in San Francisco. Like I'm a, I'm a top craft cocktail bartender. Why would I sell myself short and my community short as transgender people? Like, and work in a gay bar just because of what I was, you know, like I wasn't going to settle for that. And it's not like, you know, I mean, God, I worked at a gay bar when I was younger and I made money hand over fist. I mean, that wasn't the issue, but I was just like, th- if this is what societal norms are expected of me, like, no way, no thank you. I've never just been like one to just like, you know, be placated and do what I was, you know, expected to do.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. And you had you have such amazing skills um, that you earned right through educating exactly. yourself, through going through programs, through the freaking hard work at the bars and restaurants that you worked at. So absolutely. You want to apply those in real life situations because that's where your talent lies in your knowledge, Aubrey. You know, that's what you bring. Um, exactly. So I applaud you. I think that's awesome. You didn't settle. You I didn't, didn't settle. settle.
2: Yeah, but it was it was it was it was not without its struggles. That's for sure. Like you know, my friends are just sick and tired of me just like being broke all the time. It's like I was living off of cash assistance, you know, Medicaid, living in these like these horrible situations where I was you know being attacked on a regular basis and chased out of a building because people thought I was a narc or just like going through nightmare situations in these in these SROs. Um, but I considered it, it was like my cocooning phase, you know, like I went in here, I did my thing. um, And then once I was comfortable enough in my transition where I was like, well, you know, I I, I am looking like a woman and I am, you know, I, I do think that I am attractive. And I started getting that confidence because, I mean, going through, you know, transitioning from one gender to the next, it's like, it's going through second puberty you know, it's like your body's changing, things are happening. You don't feel comfortable in your own skin. Like you're awkward and weird. And, you know, it's like your voice is cracking and you, you're just like, you know, you really have to like, it's like a baby giraffe trying to learn how to walk again and going from somebody who was, you know, incredibly confident. And it's like back then, like, I didn't know what white male privilege was until it was like all stripped away. You know, it's just like, wow, put on a dress and see what happens to that privilege. Wow. You know, it was like it was like I didn't even know what it was until it was completely gone, and it was like really, you know, gave me perspectives on so many different things. Like just, uh, it broadened my 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 mind. I was just like, okay, I get, I I understand a lot more on a, to, so many different levels. You know how society behaves and and what they expect.
0: Yeah, and and it has, you know, and it's all outside of you, right? And and so much is driven by perception and and what society expects and and we have to, you know, we don't have to, but most do mold to that and never able to be their true self. So it's just incredible and so inspiring that you share your experience with us and our listeners, you know? And I think um if you don't mind me asking is you know, tell us a little bit about, you mentioned, you know, I went into the system and then did the transition. Like what, what does that look like? I mean, I, we always hope that, you know, one of our listeners could be inspired and maybe they're in a similar situation or, or want to make that transition. You know, could you share that experience with us? Yeah, Yeah. Um, I can't say, I mean,
2: wow. A lot of people think you know, that maybe if they do transition that, you know, if they do have a rough life, that maybe it's going to be different. Maybe it's going to be better. I mean, this, this is not for the light of heart. Like, I mean, I, I can't imagine a more difficult thing to do in life than actually change gender. It's like, it was um, so difficult. Like I, I really got through it. And I mean, maybe I'm just lucky you know, where I had the mental fortitude in order to, to, you know, endure the abuse that I was put through and like, you know, having to go through just going to the doctors and taking the hormones and going through, you know, insane mood swings and, you know, just having to adjust to the hormonal changes and, and also doing this in places where I'm surrounded by people who are dealing with mental illness um severe s- lifelong substance abuse uh, you just criminals and just uh, all kinds of like a menagerie of folks living in these in these situations and it, it was hard it was incredibly hard I mean I went through a, a lot of bad experiences but you know it's just like I kept trudging on I don't know I like I said earlier I, I, I'm just a stubborn person and you know, you tell me something that I can't do, and I'm going to be like, "Well, let me show you how I can." And I just kept plugging away. And like I said, you know, I just got to this point where I finally started getting my confidence back. So like, you know, how to. And I decided that, you know, one day I was just going to print up a resume and get my ass out there and uh, look for a job and set myself up for some crazy rejection. You know, and it's just like I had to be prepared for this. I don't know, advice for other people in in my situation is uh, don't let people tell you how to live your own life. You know, don't, you know, you got to, you got to really march to the beat of your own drum. And, you know, a lot of people see someone who is living their true life, who's living their best life, and they're jealous of that. And they will try and tear you down. And you really have to stay focused. You know, you have to realize that for instance, I was walking one day with a friend, and you know, beginning in my transition, and someone like just came out of nowhere—a complete stranger—just had to come up and just talk shit to me. You know, just like tell me I was hideous, tell me I, you know, called me a bunch of different slurs, and then just walked away. And I was devastated, and my I started crying. And my friend stopped me. He's like, "Hey, are you doing this for yourself? Or are you doing it for them?" And uh, that gave me perspective, and it was just like, well you know, this isn't everybody's cup of tea. I'm not going to please everybody by doing this, but at the end of the day, you know, this is what's going to make me happy. This is what's going to make me a genuine person. And I'd rather die a genuine person than keep living on living a lie as a miserable person. So that's what I had to keep, keep in mind. Like I I was doing this for myself. You know, I wasn't doing this for society. I wasn't doing this to please others you know, and, and, and whatever happened, happened. And eventually, like I said, I went out, I started interviewing for jobs and I got a job bartending at, you know, a fine dining restaurant in Harlem where the chef got a James Beard award and it was Michelin starred. And it was just, I was like, wow. Yeah. And it was, it was such a great experience. Um, Next thing I know, you know, it's like, I'm off on this whole new professional adventure in New York city. And I just kept going, you know, and I left there and got a bartending job somewhere else. And, you know, it just, just kept going and going and going and, you know, did right by me and eventually beverage director and general manager for three of the top cocktail bars in Manhattan. And I was the assistant general manager for one of the hottest nightclubs in New York. And, you know, it was because I did not, you know, um, settle.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like when you become real with yourself and love yourself, you take care of yourself, right? So exactly. you're only going to provide the best life for yourself and that is so important and I think many of us go through that. Um and a lot of times with age, I feel like comes wisdom and it makes things, <laughs> you know, more clear as well, but no, that's just that's incredible. Thank you for for sharing that with us. So you're now a Harlem lady, Harlem queen, right? You still live there. And that's your stomping grounds.
2: The, actually, I'm in the Bronx right now. I was in Bronx? Harlem.
0: Okay, you were. in yes. Harlem. Okay. I know you told us you would take us out in Harlem for
2: sure. So Oh, yeah, most definitely. We um, Yeah, so uh, let's, I guess, you know, uh, the, the best part about this story, I guess, is really this next part, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, I finally got out of being homeless. I got my own apartment. Um, You know, so that was that was huge. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I'm not fighting for survival anymore. I finally got a home base and that made everything a lot easier. And then right before the pandemic hit, I was, you know, running three cocktail bars. And this gentleman comes in with a friend of mine and he owns a liquor company. And he, we start talking and we exchange information. He's trying to soft sell me on the stuff. And, but at this point in time, I had like a charity event going on in one bar. I had swing dancers and a band going on in another bar. And then just the other bar was just always packed. So I was very busy and didn't really get a chance to talk. Then the pandemic hit. And uh, I get this like random text message from this gentleman I met. And he's just like, hey, you know, just wanted to touch base, see how you're doing, see how you're surviving this, you know, quarantine and the craziness. And he's like, I live right near Central Park. How about you come down and hang out with me and my dogs and we'll just chill out in the park? And I was like, yeah, okay, why not? And so I did and we became friends and I started styling cocktails for him, for his product, which is St. Luna. It is a beautiful charcoal filtered moonshine. And so through styling the cocktails and just, you know, just hanging out, Um, I got acquainted with the brand I got, um, we became great friends. And then at the beginning of this year, he asked me if I would be interested in going on a sales trip to Pittsburgh. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I, uh, I bartended in Pittsburgh and had some contacts there and my mother lives outside Pittsburgh. So I was like, yeah, of course I'll go to Pittsburgh with you. And it was good to just get out of Dodge for a minute. And we opened up like 10 new accounts um, and on the drive back, he offered me partnership in, uh, in the spirit brand. And so now I am co-owner of St. Luna charcoal filtered moonshine, and I am the chief brand development queen.
1: Aubrey. Wow. 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 I wow indeed. Yay! Woo-hoo. And I fingers. loved that.
0: That's what I loved best about your bios. You referred to yourself as a queen. Cause that you are for sure.
1: You absolutely are. And I would love to talk to you a little bit um, about Moonshine because it's such an interesting category that we absolutely don't talk about enough. So can you tell us about the brand and what are your thoughts around Moonshine in in today's day and age? Well, it's, it's,
2: wow. You know, it's when, when my, when my partner and good friend, David Sook, he, uh, you know, he, he approached me at this. I was, I was opening up. I was in the process of opening up a brand new cocktail bar for my old boss in the East Village. And I was just like, oh, my God, just all of a sudden, I'm just like, I could run this cocktail bar and have that safety and security and work for a boss, you know, who's brilliant, genius. I'm just going to throw out his name, Ravi. He is such a great individual and just uh, just this brilliant force in, 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 in in the hospitality industry. And so when he called me up to say that, you know, he wanted me back, I was just like tickle pink, you know, I was like I couldn't be happier. And then I was faced with like, hey, do you want to be part owner in this liquor company? I'm just like, oh, my God, I chose my dreams and being ownership. And but I was like, wow, moonshine. I was like being, a, you know, a beverage director and, and a bartender. I'm just like, wow, moonshine. You know, it had a, a really big moment in the sun about 10 years ago and it was very popular. but. You know, with its popularity, it became like, I don't know, it became almost like a gimmick, you know, like people were making this, you know, grain liquor and putting it into mason jars, you know, trying to make it more authentic, you know, by basically, you know, turning it into a caricature, you know, of, of something you know, that is a real heritage spirit and putting apple pie and cherry pie and pumpkin pie flavoring into it and just like totally ruining what could potentially be an amazing spirit category. And then the heyday ended. And so now I'm faced with, you know, trying to get rid of the stigmatism that has attached itself to moonshine. And if you think about it, moonshine is really the only true American heritage spirit. You know, it was, born and bred here in the united states you know whiskeys from from the british isles you know ireland scotland um you know rum is from the caribbean and and french influenced and so moonshine is really the only one that truly is truly american and it's in its upbringing and has has such an influence on american culture you know like you have nascar which can you know one of the largest spectator sports in the world is, you know, a product of the moonshine running um, prohibition and speakeasies came from like moonshiners. And, you know, these people that during prohibition decided to say, Hey, no, like, we can't just let the good times slip away. And, you know, kept this, you know, kept alcohol distillation process going, even though it was banned for, you know, 12, 13 years. And, it's just got this beautiful, you know, history and, you know, it's infamous and legendary with great stories and, you know, with characters like Derringer and Capone and, you know, Rum Runners and, you know, all this stuff where it's just like, it really should have such a a, a better reputation in the current market. But it just kind of, you know, it it, it just... I think it it, its star got too bright too fast and then just faded off. And right now, my hopes um, and what we're working on with Saint Luna is to bring it back and give it the respect that it deserves. You know, in in the pantheon of of spirits, you know, like my ultimate goal and my dream would to see it be as a mainstay in every bartender's well. Like you have vodka, gin, rum, tequila, triple sec, moonshine. With bourbon, rye, scotch, and their vermouth, and that should be it. You know, it's like I want one day to have some pretty young college girl come into the bar and be like, "Yeah, I'll take a shine and soda," and be like, "Yes, you can have a shine and soda."
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, you're right. I think that it it should be a category in its own. You know, because right now it'll probably get loaded into like American whiskey or like an other. So yeah. I think it is important. I think with St. Luna, what you're doing is really premiumizing moonshine and showing how amazing it could be. And hopefully you'll inspire other brands to do the same, right? Because it, the more exactly. competition there is and more brands, then, then it creates a category, which is what I love about the spirits industry is that, you know, it, it is very competitive. And I feel like um, brands do support new brands for, from coming on just to, you know, bring the importance to the category.
2: Exactly. You know, and it's just like ours is different. You know, it's, it's, you know, some people want to classify it as a white dog, you know, an unaged, um, urban or rye, you know, something that's either corn or, or rye predominant. And it's not, you know, it's not ours is 95% grade a molasses that we source from sugar cane that's grown in Northern Florida. Um, and it's finished with 5% rye um, that we grow within a few miles of the distillery in Statesville, North Carolina. And it's kind of hard. You know, it's like some people want to classify us as like a rum or a whiskey, but we're not 70% bourbon, so We can't be bourbon. We're not 70% rye. We can't be rye. We're not rum. Um, so yeah, so we still stay in this like this weird little limbo of, you know, like, of moonshine. And, and it's
0: not a, it's not a whiskey. It's not no, a whiskey. It's not, not. A rum. So what makes it's a a moonshine? A moonshine? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I guess that's what we're trying to figure out. You know, it's like, it's something, uh, you know, like we, when you think of moonshine, you think of some like, you know, guy in overalls and some weird hat and trekking out into the woods in the middle of the night and the mountains, you know, somewhere in Tennessee into like this illegal built still. And and ours basically kind of was like that, except our distiller is a third generation chemist and he's this super amazing family man named Scott. And he lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but our, our stuff came by honestly, like it was made in a still on a farm in Georgia. And it was a passion project that was put together by Scott, you know? And like, how 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 else do you just like start a liquor company or even learn how to make alcohol if you're not working with like, you know, a company that has billions of dollars behind it, or you're a celebrity, or you have generational, you know, experience going into making something like, how do you break in, you know, like, you know, how do you learn how to make alcohol if you don't have somebody, a master distiller teaching you? And I think these are the things that, you know, that's true moonshine it's like all these home brewers who just like came out of the woodwork about 15 20 years ago and because of it we have this craft beer revolution and it wouldn't have started by budweiser it wasn't going to be started by you know Coors or inbev you know it was going to be started by people they wanted something quality they wanted something different they wanted something experimental and so they did it themselves you know and i think that's basically that's that's The American spirit and the American dream, like, I'm going to take this mass produced product, you know, something that I do enjoy, but I know for a fact I can do better and actually set out and do it, you know, and we saw like what happened in the beer world, like, you know, all these little companies started doing amazing things. And I think moonshine is kind of like that same that same deal. It's like we're not going to be welcome with open arm by these large companies, you know, like it's going to be a fight. And if you want something that you think is quality and something that you want to make yourself, then you're going to just have to branch out and be that first pioneer and do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're doing it, girl. You mean you're we are doing it. You're doing doing it. It's amazing. You have the fight in you, but you're also producing like a something that's beautiful and um and you have hopes for it. Like what do you what do you foresee with the category, let's say within the next five years? Um I,
2: I mean, within the next five years, I want us to be a national product i want us to be an international product i want to see the spirit category get the um respect that it deserves you know yeah it's it's such a learning experience like i i don't have a whole lot of like history as, as you know like um an owner in a, in a product so just that in itself is brand new to me and you know I, we're not starting out like you know with a vodka or a gin like no we had to make it moonshine so it's like taking something that's trying to break into an already impossible market and doing it with a product that no one really is using <laughs> so it's i want to see it i want to i want ours to be a stepping stone and a foot in the door for other people who want to try to do something different and you see it these days like you know with people who are making amaros people who are making vermouths and things that normally people wouldn't even, you know, consider could be craft or small batch and and make a difference. But it is, it's happening. Like you see it with Applejack and you see it with uh, different mixers. And it's just, I don't know, it, it, it seems like that whole beer revolution has now moved into spirits. And I just want to keep seeing that whole, that craft kind of spirit keep evolving, you know, and I mean, who knew what the hell Mezcal was 15 years ago?
0: Yeah, I have faith. I, th- I think you're really onto something um, more than just the category itself, you know, as far as moonshine, but the craft movement and how important it is. You know, I've been um, the, this last week, I've been kind of immersed with the WSWA, you know, the Minded um, Spirits Wholesalers of America. And obviously okay. in America, we're in the three tier system. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges and, and I truly believe, and you could say I drank the Kool-Aid, but the three tier system works, you know, and, and it's the most successful system at, in all the countries. And it, and it really is meant to, um, not only, you know, enforce social responsibility upon each of the tiers, um, and the safe consumption of alcohol. I think we can always do better, um, Absolutely. but also to promote competitiveness and competition. So that's one of the key things now. And there's, you know, and with these craft producers like yourself, they're like, well, we can't compete because of the big guys, you know, and, and I think it's, it's worth it. And everybody's digging into that, but is it because of the three tier system or is it because of a tier or, you know, like, I don't know that that's the wholesalers. I think us as a company and other wholesalers are definitely getting more serious about bringing in the craft brands. I know WSWA has started uh, a coaching for craft brands to show them how to really, you know, break into the market. You know, what are your thoughts on that from coming from the perspective of an owner of a craft brand? Oh, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. Um,
2: You know, I've been on, now I've been on both sides. You know, I've been the buyer and now I'm the seller. And Mm -hmm. It is interesting because you see these people who have been in the industry for a long time who are big names in the business and, you know, they're, they just, they'll tell you to your face, like, oh my God, we love your product. You know, we want to support small business. We want to support women-owned businesses. We want to support, you know, gay-owned businesses. But, you know, they say a lot of things until it comes down to the time where it's just like, hey... I've given you a free bottle. I've tasted you on stuff. What do you think? Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, we just don't, we just don't have it in our program. You know, we don't have the room for you, you know, and you're just like, oh my God, dude, it's just like, you say you want to be a craft cocktail bar. You have got craft cocktail bartenders, but you don't want to spend the money on craft spirits. And it's, it's so, it's interesting because, you know, like on this side, it's like, you know, you have this beautiful product. But I don't have like, you know, large amounts of money to throw at these bar owners in order to like get my space on their cocktail menu. And it's an interesting game to play. And I know that we're going to win this game. I know because, you know, we do have this beautiful product and, you know, and and honestly, we are going to... Not only survive, but we're going to succeed because of the smaller markets outside of New York City and places like New York with these like established, you know, old school bartenders who have these like established bars. You know, we're going to be winning in like Boise, we're going to be winning in like Nashville, Uh, we're going to be winning in like, you know, smaller, smaller markets because that's where the people who really care about the craft are also care about the product that they're using. You know, and it's just like some amaz- amazingly talented bartender in like Memphis, Tennessee is going to come up with some great drinks with our stuff. And then it's going to be, you know, only a matter of time before some famous bartender in New York City discovers it, <laughs> you know? And then they'll say, hey, I just discovered this amazing craft spirit. And then it'll start growing from there. But it's, it's the grassroots. It's the smaller, it's the smaller market that are really going to build us up until, you know, the bigger markets are forced to take, take notice of us.
1: Absolutely. If
2: if that That makes makes any sense.
1: sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that makes total sense. And where can our
0: listeners find St. Luna? I I see that you're um, offered on Reserve Bar. Yeah. We're on Reserve Bar. We're on Caskers. Um, Like I said, it's like a catch 22 trying to uh,
2: figure out when you start off with a small distributor and it's like, You know, we're trying to get better representation in these different cities, but it's just like, you know, the larger places won't pick us up until they see how we do, you know, and it's just like, well, we got to do really well with a distributor that no one uses in order for a larger one to pick us up. But we are making, you know, a lot of uh, headway and, you know, we're starting off our strongest thing place is on premise in the cocktail bars because it's the cocktail bartenders that are going to the love on social media where you know people are going to be able to go to the bars, have our cocktail that, you know, is on the cocktail menu, and then, you know, be able to go to the uh the wine shops and the liquor stores in order to be able to pick our stuff up because they don't want to carry us until people start to ask for it. So, you know, it's just this, it's this, it's a game that we're playing, but like I said, we we're we're making strides, you know, and we're getting better and better every month. So Look for us in your local cocktail bar and then start asking your local liquor store and pressuring them and soon we'll be everywhere.
1: Can't wait to have a shine and soda with you.
2: Oh my God, right? Sometime soon.
1: It, it is to happen, going okay? to
2: happen. I promise. I'm already yes. looking towards Chicago now, so Wonderful. stay tuned.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Aubrey, on behalf of Julie, myself and the Served Up team, I just, we just want to thank you for your really, for sharing your story today, for being completely authentic and just for being you girl, you are so inspiring. And we, yes. And we wish you all of our best. I mean it all of our best because you're, you're about to really crush it (laughs) and creating a whole new category for the beverage community. I Which think is so nothing too. but amazing things ahead for you. So, you know, just on behalf of us, I just wanna wish you just great health during this time that we're still living in this awful pandemic and just a lot of peace. So thank, thank you. you. So much,
2: ladies. Oh my God, it has been such a pleasure. So happy to meet both of you. It's always good to see other, you know, amazing women in this industry just like who have, you know, had the staying power and are crushing it. So, yes,
0: thank 100%. You so much. And it's we've only, you know, tapped the surface. So, Amen. it's only the beginning. Thank you, Aubrey. Thank Cheers. you.
2: Bye ladies. Bye. Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening. Served up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Killed the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes.
1: Cheers!